Hello and welcome to Yes Indeed Pod, a podcast about indie tabletop role-playing games where I interview creators about their games and inspirations and about the theory, process and practice of game design. My name is Mark Shepard, a game design enthusiast, role-playing game editor, indie hustler slash promoter and interview podcaster. You can find me on Twitter at IamFofos and on itch.io at blue-golem-games.itch.io. This week, I'm interviewing Hannah Schaefer and Evan Rowland of Make Big Things, an indie design co-op that makes tabletop role-playing games, board games, and innovative hybrids of the two. They're known for Questlandia and Noirlandia, as well as Damn the Man, Save the Music, and the board game Good Dog, Bad Zombie. Hannah and Evan are also the hosts of the excellent game design podcast, Design Doc Pod, which we mentioned in the show. I encourage you to go and check it out if you like what I do, because it's a major inspiration for my work as both a designer and podcaster. There are some issues with my audio for this interview. It was recorded at a very low bitrate, and it sounds like a 1950s phone call. I think it's bearable, and I don't say much anyway, but please accept my apologies for this lapse. Now that's out of my head and into yours, let's talk indie. Today we're talking to Hannah Schaefer and Evan Rowland of Make Big Things. Hi. Hey. How's it going? It's going great. Very, very good. Fantastic. Why don't you tell me a little bit about yourselves and what you do in indie tabletop role-playing games? I'll go first, sure. We're both members of Make Big Things, which is a three-person indie game design co-op. Well, we all share similar roles, which is designing games, laying out books, going to conventions, and trying to make it work. (laughs) In addition to that, I also work on board games that I bring to traditional publishers and try to get them to make for me, which is, you know touch and go uh and i'm one of the people who has like a deeply personal video game project that's been dragging on for years and maybe someday before i reach my deathbed will be released i hope so that sounds fun it is it's it's a blast (laughs) and i'm hannah i'm also part of make big things we make games that tend to revolve around shared care of the world and each other, both board games and role-playing games and board role-playing game hybrids. And I also make some of my own small games that tend to be more like, is this a game or is this a poem? And I release those through (laughs) Itch.io and Patreon. You currently have a couple of projects in the works. I think the next one that we'll probably see from you is um, Starship Ultralux. Would you like to tell us a little bit about what that is? Yeah. So Starship Ultralux originally began as a Kickstarter stretch goal for our role-playing game, Damn the Man, Save the Music, which is about a bunch of teenagers and punks in the 90s trying to save their indie record store from collapse through our game's Uh, There's like a general theme of people trying to save things that are collapsing around them. (laughs) So Starship Ultralux was our final stretch goal. And we were like, we're going to do a damn the man setting in space. That's going to be, you know, sort of like a Douglas Adams inspired uh, record store at the end of the universe. Uh, it's going to be a full game, but it's really hard to make a full game. And damn the man, the Kickstarter ended like three years ago or something. So Eventually, we decided that if we were putting all of this work into making another whole game, that we should just really put the work in and make it something independent from the original setting and something that stood on its own. Thus, Starship Ultralux was born. And maybe, Evan, you want to pitch sort of what what the game has become? Sure. 
So the game follows the crew and survivors of a galactic luxury cruise liner that's gone a million years off course. All the original crew has long since evacuated, including the ship AI. Everything's on backup. The foods, the supplies have had a million years to evolve into their own ecosystem. And you have sort of surreal, fantastic space comedy adventures aboard an impossibly huge and impossibly decadent ship. So until you hit decadence, um, I was thinking that another one of the influences that you might be thinking of here was the extremely British sci-fi sitcom Red Dwarf, which I believe you have mentioned as an influence to this game before. Yes. <laughs> totally. Yeah, absolutely. Watched a lot of Red Dwarf in preparation. <laughs> Red Dwarf was a huge part of my life growing up. So. <laughs> <laughs> Mine too. Do you want to tell us about some of the other influences you might have from um, from other games? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not just games. It's also media. Like Douglas Adams was a big influence for me growing up, I think, like at a scholastic book fair when I was, you know, maybe 12 or something. I had just moved to a new state and was feeling very lonely and ended up randomly picking up these like two books with sci-fi book covers. One of them was Ray Bradbury's Martian Chronicles, and the other one was Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And like that began, you know, the <laughs> gradual descent into greater nerdery, nerddom. And <laughs> it was it was really good at the time to be, you know, like a kid feeling a little bit alone in the world and reading science fiction as a, a metaphor for a bigger world out there. Douglas Adams in general is one of the big inspirations for this game. And also Douglas Adams has a video game called Starship Titanic, which is not the greatest game. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it as a piece of art has not necessarily stood the test of time. Where can I find this? <laughs> you know, I think it's like 99 cents on Steam. <laughs> you can actually, you can pick it up for pretty cheap. <laughs> yeah, okay. I might, I might have a look for that. That sounds cool. That sounds Right. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's one of the other inspirations. Evan, what what are some of the other things? I feel like Red Dwarf and Douglas Adams covers the majority of source materials this comes from. I mean, one of the things that I'm interested in about indie games is sort of genealogy and the ancestry of it and how all of the, uh, I don't know, story games and narrative games tie together. And I was wondering, really, if you had any other designers out there who you wanted to say, you know, you have been an influence on this work or the way that X game structures its narrative has been something which has helped us to formalize how we think about um, plot structure and things in this game. Or has it just come out of the blue? I mean, that's also a completely valid <laughs> I mean, it, it definitely hasn't come out of the blue. You know, we have all of these. Uh, it's like everything that we have made is is built on the foundation of people who have just been like iterating on um, indie games some of our early like some of our early connections in gaming were Emily Kerr Boss who makes a lot of like beautiful romance games Joshua Newman who makes sci-fi games Epi Ravichal who did Dread I don't think we're necessarily drawing from any of those games in Starship Ultralux, but those were, you know, early friends in terms of yeah. like people who helped to lead us into making games and, and people who are local to our area and kind of showed us what games could be. And then, you know, in terms of the structure, we're kind of trying to reach out a little bit with this one and, and make a structure that will also really appeal to people who have never played a role-playing game before. Yeah, I think for the playthroughs that I've heard 
of Damn the Man Save the Music, which I know is fairly structurally similar to this game, that feels very much like you've you've achieved that goal because it's something that you're familiar with the tropes of the genre that you're tying into, be it that kind of 90s era, slightly punky, slightly irreverent film like Empire Records, for example, or be it Red Dwarf, Douglas Adams. Mm-hmm. Familiar with those tropes, you should be able to get into playing this game quite quickly because the story beats and the narrative structure are going to be quite similar. That feels like a really good way to get people into this kind of story game to begin with. We're trying to continue what Damn the Man did right. Even as this game drifts further and further away from that rule set, Damn the Man had a great sense of structure to how the scenes are set up and how the arc of play will go. I always regret saying great about one of my own games. No, definitely. You should say that. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta gotta own it. (laughs) That both made it friendly to new players and gave a kind of rapid pace to the plot that matched really well with that setting. Yeah. So making a quick pace where you're not worried about meandering off into the distance and losing the plot is great for this genre of game too, where we're trying to make it have a very episodic feeling, like watching an episode of Red Dwarf, where maybe it touches on the larger problems and arc of this ship and the crew and their attempt to get home. But you also have a self-contained obstacle and narrative to go through with each session. So in terms of your game structure, what's the general flow of play? How do you engage the players in in telling these kind of stories? What tools do you hand to players to let them come up with their own plots? You know, with with Starship Ultralux, I think that this may be our our most narrow game yet in terms of how we're starting players off. We're kind of starting off with episodes. And the idea is to release the game with three episodes, so like three sessions. The game would play out in three arcs, but each one like a a self-contained episode. And within those episodes, there are a bunch of scenes that players can choose from. And then within those scenes, there's even suggestions for like the sort of dramatic beats in that scene. Yeah. So, you know, an example is, and I don't have the document in front of me right now, but there's one that's like this sort of Mad Max style riff about, you know, having to race a death taxi. There's like this this evil death taxi that's like clogging up the roadways on the ship. Right. And you have to find the leader of this, you know, this Mad Max style uh, vehicle cult and race the taxi. Yeah. And there's like all these different options for like how you approach the scene. Do you want to challenge them to a race? Do you want to disrupt their fuel supply? And I think the idea is that, you know, after people have had experience with the structure that, you know, maybe by the time they get to episode two or even in episode one, a group could be writing their own plot cards based on how their story is going and that we've just kind of templated it out for them. Yeah, that sounds really accessible to new players, for instance, like if you are sounds like you wouldn't actually have to be familiar with the the normal structure of a role-playing game in order to just pick this up and start playing within 10-15 minutes if you had a a very rudimentary understanding of what the rules were or what the mechanics of the game were. Yeah, that's that's our hope. This idea of episodic narrative is kind of something that I touched upon with the designer I interviewed on Sunday about their game Winter Harvest, um, which is played out in four episodes and which follows the going of the season. And it also ties into what I was talking about with Duan Figueroa Sol about his game Deep Nightly Fathoms, which is intended to be played out with closure in mind that there will be an endpoint to this game. 
And it feels like I'm, I'm reading more and more of these indie games which are not set up for extensive long-term campaign play. They're set up for a discrete experience which hopefully lets you feel more fulfilled, lets you walk away feeling like you've had all the different parts of the story and without any of it dragging on and becoming uninteresting. Yeah, I mean, you know, some of it, I think for us, and, and maybe Evan, you have thoughts about this. I, I don't know what it's like for other people, but just the experience of trying to play test for a game that's going to go on beyond, say, five sessions um, brings yeah. all sorts of new challenges. And yeah. in our work, trying to work on Questlandia 2, which is a game that I can go on indefinitely. It might, it might be a game that can go on indefinitely. Yeah. Uh, it just feels like there's so many more eventualities that we have to plan for when thinking about how to yeah. keep a game satisfying for a group of players that might want to play for years. I mean, looking at Questlandia 2, and based on my understanding of what you've talked about on Design Doc Pod it feels like a different sort of set of a story because you are playing in different worlds as that goes on, which feels like different to your kind of classic long-term campaign play where you're playing in a, in a kind of a set manner over a long period of time. Um, that is definitely something which I would find interesting. I don't know. That sort of feels like sliders to me, you know, that classic 90s sci-fi TV <laughs> show where you're, you're drifting in and out of worlds and like you're interacting with them. I mean, I don't know how Questlandia 2 is set up, but with Questlandia 1, that was very much you are interacting with the world because there is an issue with it that you're trying to resolve. So that feels like it would be sort of similarly episodic in nature. No, you have a good point. Like, we do have a similar goal with Questlandia 2 of breaking down the campaign into what you could call episodes, but also episode sort of implies a regular size and a regular arc. And the hope for Questlandia 2 is that your contained experiences of these worlds are more flexible, where you might have a world that you really dip into and, and piece right out of, or a world where you spend quite a while going deeper into it in a way that you can decide on the fly as a group. Yeah, I really like the sound of that. But even when you're doing that, like a long stay within a world would have its own cycles that it's broken down yeah. into. So I, I feel like it's important at any point in a game to have a sense of where you are in an arc, to have an end point in yeah. mind and to be able to sort of trust that between the people at the table and the system you're using, you're going someplace worthwhile. Mm, yeah. So with Dasha Ultralux, then you're setting up those episodes and those scenes and then those narrative beats within that scene. And that feels like it's a really important tool for teaching people clever ways to bring a plot online, which I think is a really valuable tool for people who are not just new to storytelling games, but who might be experienced role players who want to improve their GMing skills, for instance, or who want to just maybe be able to tell a more compelling story. Was that your intent? Were you trying to teach people these narrative structures or did it just feel like that was a, a game mechanic which felt right for the particular feel that you were trying to get across? You know, I think with Starship Ultralux, and it, it kind of makes sense that it's like a, a successor of um, Damn the Man, we've set up these beats in some ways to try to help people just feel less lost and less like thrown into the, you know, okay, now it's time to role play but also they've ended up being really helpful in games that are so genre. Genre is not the word that I'm thinking of, but games where where they have their own tropes. Like, you know, a Douglas Adams world is so different from playing in like the, the world of the expanse. 
Yeah. And uh, Damn the Man Save the Music in the 90s is really different than, like, um, you know, Empire Records is really different than Train Spotting. Well, you say that. Or <laughs> Train Spotting <laughs> might not be the best. I'm trying to think of, like, what? Uh, uh, the movie Kids? How about that? <laughs> it's like Kids, which is, you know, this, like, on the other end of the spectrum of, like, this is how dark the 90s could be everybody is gonna die in this movie because they were teenagers who did risky things um so like that's that's not the the story that we wanted to tell yeah so you know i i think it's both to help people not feel as as just thrown into the role playing and also to help like constrain the tropes and the theme and the tone and to to like give a little guidebook of like this is this is what some of these tropes look like and we'll give you a few of them and maybe afterwards you'll feel like ready to carry this story forward knowing yeah. what yeah. this world is all about. I think that's fantastic and it gives people those the points to how they can kind of hack their own game and maybe make their own versions of Ah, oh, I suppose the the phrase that I'm thinking of is genre emulator, which is mm. kind of how people talk about powered by the apocalypse games, but I do not really like that yeah. phrase. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> I feel like it, it really discredits what, what I'm trying to say, which is that you are designing a game with a specific theme and a specific mood and specific tropes in mind, and you want to get those across. And that's not really anything to sniff at because it's hard to do. I've tried to do it, <laughs> it's not easy. I was wondering if you would like to talk a little bit about what it's like to hack your own game. Because I speak to a lot of people who hack other people's games. Powered by the Apocalypse is a classic example of this. When you are looking at your own work that you did three years ago, and you're saying critically, well, what, what would I do to change this? How do I hack it to make it more appropriate? I'm just fascinated to know how you go about doing that kind of thing. My perspective on the experience is that it's not exactly a successful hack. It's sort of like we hacked our way completely through the system, digging a tunnel out into a different game entirely. <laughs> That's fantastic. Because we started with like a kind of basic reskinning of Damn the Man. You know, now the, the residents of the record store uh-huh. are residents of a galactic record store. And the plot is crazier and more futuristic. But as we went... We just found more ways that we wanted the mechanics of the game to work, to mesh with this setting. You know, one big decision we made is like, okay, we want to have a comedy game, but we don't want to put all the pressure on players to just come up with Douglas Adams level ludicrous situations and jokes on the fly. So we wanted to have a mechanic to support creating that kind of futuristic, but... yeah. I don't know, techno-absurdism or something. That, that's a good phrase, techno-absurdism. Yes, I like that. <laughs> Let's go with that. Dada in space. Yes. <laughs> and what we ended up doing in Ultralux is creating a randomizer system that puts together NPCs you meet and sections of the ship you encounter and important objects that you are either after or are thrust into your care. And those put you in situations where the absurdity is already there and whether you roll with it or object to it or ignore it you know if you just act naturally with it you're engaging in a techno absurdist moment (laughs) yeah you're already there yeah whatever you do there's not going to be a wrong move when you're in a carnival that's vertical and goes down 10 miles into the 
depths of this ship, whatever you decide to do in that setting is going to be worthy of being in this story. Yeah. <laughs> That's a really good point that you make about randomizers. I mean, I don't know exactly how it works, but like random tables often produce something which is a little bit wacky and that which players either engage with and make it hilarious or don't engage with and just throw it out outright. I don't know. I was I was listening to a an actual play podcast earlier where they were just using random tables from as many supplements as they could find. And they put together a story which <laughs> was completely wacky and outlandish. And it was very funny, but it was all carried off by the wit of the players. It wasn't carried off by narrative choices that were making. It was that the players were very funny mm-hmm. themselves that was making it good. So it feels right that you're also providing tools that help to pace out comedy and action. It's a really important mix with this kind of setting where the things that happen can go so haywire. Yeah. Right. You can be like, oh, we all have been transformed into microscopic insects that are crawling on the surface of the ship and we're going to have to deal with this now. And that's so out there and such a bizarre situation to have to go through that having a rigid structure where we know that this is actually going to fit right into the plot of this episode and we're going to get through the arc together through this however it looks well it's a good mix yeah absolutely it's it's not quite a mix of um you must do this in a in a serious and sensible way but it's a mix of if you Mm -hmm. were writing an episode of red dwarf or if you were writing a douglas adams book here are the parts of this next story arc which you would typically hit right i mean you're probably not being as prescriptive as that (laughs) it is a little bit like that because if you look at the characters in those sources and those inspirations the events of the book aren't very character driven the characters are basically bobbing along in a series of insane plot points Uh, and when they do affect it it's often by accident or in the wrong direction and that sense of engaging with the universe you're in in the story but without having a lot of agency in it is something we wanted to hit. Yeah, Terry Pratchett's another good example. Yeah, I mean, the way that those kind of fantasy comedy stories were paced later was kind of better, you know. Mm -hmm. But those early books, I'm thinking of like The Light Fantastic and The Color of Magic, it's very much a case of the world is happening to the characters. Yes. Rather than the characters having agency in the world. Right. So it's kind of like the opposite of fate, for instance. And actually, it's kind of like the opposite of Questlandia and Noirlandia. You're not going out there to change the world that's around you. Mm -hmm. In a way, you're being changed by the world around you or nothing is happening. You know, it's a sort of zero sum game where you're only you're just out there to save your neck and hang on to your towel. Yeah, part of the randomizers and part of our playtesting in terms of making sure that the game stays on tone and stays funny is also finding this balance between the absurdism and the banality of the world. So we've really tried to put put a valve right, on like... Yeah. This is when like, there's this slow drip of sometimes things are totally chaotic and totally gonzo, and that's what makes this work. But if they're all gonzo all the time... You just kind of stop yeah. being immersed in the fiction. Yeah. It stops making sense. So with that, we've you know even done a lot of tweaking to how often players use the randomizers. Because if you're just making random object and place combinations all the time, uh, you're like, oh, another wacky place. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, oh, absolutely. Sometimes you just want to, I don't know, sit in a dark room and, and not, <laughs> not worry about you know, all these crazy things you yeah. come up with. That's interesting that that's come out of playtesting. And that's what playtesting is there for. 
I'm always interested to talk to people about playtesting because it's something I struggle to find people to do. So you've made specific changes to this game based on the playtesting. Do you is that something that normally happens when you when you playtest a game? Do you do you always get that kind of feedback or do you find that your initial instincts are correct? My instincts are never correct. <laughs> <laughs> playtesting is absolutely crucial to resolve all the mistakes I make in my first drafts. Luckily, just Hannah and I can do a lot of playtesting on our own. Almost every playtest in these early stages reveals parts that are broken. It also reveals the parts that are working and are worth keeping, Yeah, which might have otherwise been just sort of pushed to the side in the course of production. So both aspects of playtesting are really valuable finding issues and finding treasures. I think that's really interesting as well that you have a group of people ready-made because you work together who can immediately both bounce ideas off and you know have a sort of 30-minute lyric game session where you talk about the mechanic that you're trying to get across is and you can probably bounce that off each other. As a solo designer you definitely don't get that and uh, you have to actively go out there. I don't know your experience of this particularly Hannah but with Itch it feels like there's a lot of games that are going out there on itch that are perhaps not being playtested before they go out into the wild. And that's very liberating, actually. That, that makes me feel like, oh, I don't have to test every single mechanic before I put it out there because people are finding these games and they're not necessarily holding them to the same level of intense scrutiny that a game that's fully published through DriveThruRPG or is out there on Indie Press Revolution needs to have. It doesn't need to have that same level of rigor attached to it. And yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with you. And I think it's, I mean, I, I love Itch.io and that's one of my favorite parts of it because playtesting takes, I mean, for us, it often takes years, <laughs> especially when yeah. sort of combined with our other work and being reliant on other people's schedules. And I think that some of what Itch.io has done in some ways is sort of revealed just how demanding that process is. And yeah. How hard it can be on people, <laughs> like emotionally, physically. It's like really a lot of work. I think it's really great to see this movement in games where people can say like, I made this game and it hasn't been play tested, but you can still give me $5 for it because my work still has value. Yeah. And, you know, maybe I'll work on it in the future. Maybe not. But like, here's here's what it is. I feel like a lot of what's happening with indie RPGs at the moment is about tools for rapid prototyping, sort of the same way that 3D printing has changed how people develop products. These tools like very open licenses like Forged in the Dark or Powered by the Apocalypse, Itch.io having a very cheap accessible platform or self-publishing in general just means that people can make very small games, put them out there and say, what do you think? And develop this, this following that is both very engaged with the products and also then being inspired by that and feeding off each other. I think that's particularly true of the Itch.io scene because there's a lot of um, lyric games being developed which are just fed off each other. You can you can very quickly trace the ancestry and the genealogy of these games. Sorry, I'm going off on one a bit because I'm <laughs> thinking about this rapid prototyping thing quite a lot. <laughs> well, clearly this is something we really care about too, so... <laughs> oh, I'm really pleased, yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say that I think there's something uh, enjoyable about playing more raw games that haven't been as tested and polished and had the corners sawed off. 
Well, it feels a little bit like going to a yard sale. It's full of personality. It's full of bits that don't always go together. Sometimes it's just an absolute treasure trove. Sometimes it's off in a way that is interesting in itself. And I mean, I enjoy playtesting our games and playing these rough versions of them, even if they have fits and starts and result in wanting to change things around. They're still enjoyable investigations of mechanics and ideas. I really love the idea that the Itch.io marketplace scene is like a, a yard sale. <laughs> That's very nice. That's a really nice soundbite. Thank you. <laughs> is there anything else you'd like to talk about in terms of Starship Ultralook? This is also the first game where we've written pre-made characters, which was incredibly fun. Oh, cool. Players pick their characters going into the game, and then, you know, within that, you can decide what you want your character's pronouns to be and, and customize your character a little bit based on some of the more nuanced parts of the type of person you want to play. Yeah. But that was really fun. And yeah, we, we developed like a love for the characters we've made. And I hope that other people end up loving them too. That's sweet. I really like that idea. Yeah. Yeah. We actually had a wonderful process of looking for artists for the game and wanting to find somebody who could kind of express the creativity of the setting, the comedy and energy of it, and the personality of these characters. I'm just so happy with who we found and how the art turned out. <laughs> I just hope that's a, a treasure for people to encounter too. Yeah. A lot of the designers I've been talking to recently have sort of spoken with a lot of reverence of the artists that they work with or the artists by whom they were inspired. And it's this nice feedback of visual artwork into the game and then the game into the visual artwork. Mm -hmm. Uh, one last thing that I wanted to talk to you both. So what you mentioned about Make Big Things is that it is a game design co-op. And as a member of a perhaps rival game design co-op, <laughs> I'm just, I'm fascinated to know your experience and why you went into cooperative design together. Originally, when we started making games, uh, when we first made Questlandia, it was just the two of us, and it was kind of a, a product of feeling kind of sad about the world. And, you know, I mean, it's a game about collapsing kingdoms, and at least in the original Questlandia, it sort of didn't matter. Like, you had the choice of whether you wanted to save your kingdom or kind of throw your world to the dogs, so to speak. And that's like a little bit of a cynical worldview, which I, I don't think we share anymore. And so I feel like starting a co-op was kind of an evolution of wanting to challenge ourselves to be putting things out, to not want to throw our world under the bus, to yeah. be making things in this non-hierarchical, like sort of horizontal structure. Yeah. Where we all had a say, where we all owned what we were making together. Yeah. I'll add that starting our work in game design through Kickstarter threw us into the deep end of having to handle every part of the process. Yeah. From the game design to the art, to the layout, to the editing, to distribution, to everything. And I think that helped build an appreciation that every part of this work is crucial and worthwhile. And it just doesn't feel right anymore to say, oh, the marketing person is a less important role than the game design. Yeah. Like every, every aspect of making these games and putting them out into the world is critical. All three of us in the co-op have skill like in each one of these different roles. And so there's a lot of fluidity between our projects of what roles we'll take on 
again, that doesn't match a typical job description where your work is laid out and isolated. I mean, I guess the final thing is just money is stressful and we're all friends and trying to take money that comes in and then evaluate each other's worth and contributions constantly to get at a proper salary or distribution with every project and every step of the way sounds like a nightmare to me. Absolutely agree with that. Yeah. I really appreciate the co-op structure of just, we're all contributing. Yeah. We divide it equally and we appreciate the efforts that all three of us are putting in. And the money isn't just even about appreciating the efforts. It's about appreciating the people. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. Like we don't have to measure you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's a very wholesome message. Go co-op. <laughs> Go co-ops. I think we should all be in a game design co-op. Yeah, I don't think they have to be uh, rivals. They can be conglomerate. We're all made of the same snuff. <laughs> Why don't you tell us where we can find you online and what your next couple of big projects are and when we can expect those, Ish. Ish, yeah, <laughs> Ish is a great addition. Uh, let's see, Make Big Things, you can find... Uh, most of our games online at makebigthings.com. And that's also our social media handle for everything. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. My Twitter handle is handbandit. And that's also my Patreon and itch.io, where I make some of my own little lyric games. Evan and I also run Design Doc, which is a podcast I was going to ask you about it because I've not heard any design doc for so long. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> our lives got a little crazy. So our next episode of Design Doc that's coming out had to be re-recorded. The episode is called D&D &D is a Cultural Space. And it's about this argument that is put forward in indie games that there are other games than D&D, &D, which is true. But we talk about that, that like D&D &D exists as part of a bigger world that doesn't make it just a game that makes it something closer to like a, a cultural experience. Ah, so that was that episode. For a second, I thought you were going to say cult because it half cut out. <laughs> Maybe for some people, a cult. That's really interesting. And I could just talk about that for hours. <laughs> I'm not going to get started. <laughs> <laughs> we have to re-record some bits. So that's why we've had such a long design doc hiatus. But that should be coming out very soon. Yeah, so you can, you know, follow design doc and we're design doc pod on Twitter. But Evan, you're on you're on social media too, more or less. I'm on Twitter. My handle's a drawn novel. Uh, I don't know what anybody's going to really do with that information. <laughs> you're welcome to come on board. <laughs> engage you in exciting and interesting discourse who knows <laughs> bring the discourse thank you very much again for coming on the pod and if you ever want to come on and chat again about game design or dungeons and dragons as a cultural space which sounds uh, like a fascinating and very interesting topic that i really just cannot touch right now even though i want to <laughs> it's like a, a carrot that we just dangled I over know, your head I'm, yeah I'm so <laughs> right at the end i can't wait for design doc now <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much again. Yeah. Thanks so much for having us on. Thank you. Bye. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. And thanks again to Hannah and Evan for the interview. Please check the links they mentioned, which as always will be in the episode description. In two weeks, I'll be interviewing Austin Ramsey about his game Beam Saber, a forged in the dark game about giant freaking robots and their pilots. And it looks stellar. It's on Kickstarter now, and you can also find those links in the episode description.
I am super stoked to be announcing the launch of the Yes Indeed Pod website, which you can find at yesindeedpod.com, all one word. At the moment, it's just a place to host players for the episodes, but I'm hoping to expand it with extra functionality in the near future. This month, I'm also launching Patreon and Ko-fi pages, where you can donate money to help with the running costs for the podcast. I love making Yes Indeed, and I promise it'll always be free, but it's not free to make and host it. If you help out monetarily through Patreon, you'll get a shout out on the show and you'll also get sneak previews of interviews and announcements when I book them. As a special incentive, I'll also throw in complimentary copies of games I release through Itch.io now and in the future. You'd also get my undying appreciation and the warm knowledge that you're helping out an indie scene that needs you. If you enjoy Yes Indeed Pod, please rate and review the show wherever you find your podcasts. Of course, you can always reach out to me through Twitter at IamFofos, that's I-A-M-P-H-O-P-H-O-S. I'd love dearly to hear from you. Lastly, music credits. All music is from BitQuest by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and Filmmusic.io. Thanks, Kevin. Until next time, remember, does indie need you? Yes, indeed. <laughs>